Chapter Three of the Castaways of the Flag. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona. The Castaways of the Flag by Jules Verne. Chapter Three. The Mutiny on the Flag. A cabin was reserved for Fritz and his wife in the Unicorn, and an adjoining one for Frank and they took their meals at Captain Littlestone's table. Nothing of special note happened during the voyage. There were all the usual incidents, changeable seas, uncertain winds, calms, and a few violent outbreaks of heavy weather through which the corvette came without much damage. In the South Atlantic they passed a few vessels which would report tidings of the unicorn in Europe. In the present interval of peace, after a long period of great wars, the high seas were safe. But the unicorn which had had a fairly easy time while crossing the Atlantic, met with shocking weather when south of Africa. A violent storm burst on her during the night of the 19th of August, and the gale drove her out to sea again. The hurricane grew more and more violent, and they had to run before it, as it was impossible to lie to. Captain Littlestone, splendidly supported by his officers and crew, displayed great skill. The mizzenmast had to be cut away, and the leak was sprung aft, which was only smothered with difficulty. At last, when the wind fell, Captain Littlestone was able to resume his course and hurried to the harbor at Cape Town for repairs. On the morning of the 10th of September, the top of the table, the mountain which gives its name to the bay, was sighted. Directly the unicorn had found her moorings. James Walston, with his wife and Dolly, came out in a boat. What a welcome they gave Fritz and Jenny and Frank, and how happy they all were. For the last ten months they had perforce been without news. Although there was no particular ground for imagining that anything untoward had befallen the people at Rock Castle, this absence could not but seem very long. James Walston's affairs had all been wound up satisfactorily. But they found themselves confronted by the impossibility of putting to sea at once. The damage done to the unicorn was serious enough to necessitate a prolonged stay in Cape Town Harbor. It would take two or three months to make repairs after her cargo had been taken out of the corvette. She could not possibly sail for New Switzerland before the end of October. But the passengers on the unicorn had an unexpected opportunity of shortening their stay at the Cape. There happened to be in the harbor a vessel due to sail in a fortnight. She was the flag an English three-masted vessel of five hundred tons, Captain Harry Gould, bound for Batavia, in the Sunda Islands. To put in at New Switzerland would take her very little out of her course, and the passengers for the island were prepared to pay a good price for their passage. Their proposal was accepted by Captain Gould, and the unicorn's passengers transferred their baggage to the flag. The three-masters' preparations were finished in the afternoon of the 20th of September. That evening they said good-bye, not without regret, to Captain Littlestone, promising to look out for the arrival of the unicorn at the mouth of Deliverance Bay towards the end of November. Next morning the flag sailed, with a favoring wind from the southwest, and before the evening of that first day the high summits of the Cape, left forty miles behind, disappeared below the horizon. Harry Gould was a fine sailor, with cool courage equal to his resolution. He was now in the prime of life, at forty-two, and had shown his quality both as mate and captain. His owners had every confidence in him. To this confidence, Robert Borup, 
the second officer on the flag, was not entitled. He was a man of the same age as Harry Gold, jealous, vindictive, and of uncontrolled passions. He never believed that he received the due meed of his merits. Disappointed in his hope of being given the command of the flag, he nursed at the bottom of his heart a secret hatred of his captain. But his temper had not escaped the vigilance of the boatswain, John Block, a fearless, reliable man devoted heart and soul to his chief. The crew of the flag, mustering some score of men, was not of the first class, as Captain Gould very well knew. The boatswain noticed with disapproval the indulgence too often shown by Robert Borup to some of the sailors when fault should have been found with them for neglect of duty. He thought that all of this was suspicious, and he watched the second officer, fully determined to give Captain Gould warning if needful. Nothing of note happened between the 22nd of August and the 9th of September. The condition of the sea and the direction of the wind were alike favorable to the ship's progress, though the breeze was a shade too light. If the three-master were able to maintain the same rate of progress, she would reach New Switzerland waters about the middle of October, within the time anticipated. But about this time the crew began to manifest symptoms of insubordination. It even looked as though the second and third officers in defiance of every sense of duty, connived at this relaxing of discipline. Robert Borup, influenced by his own jealous and perverse nature, took no steps to check the disorder. But the flag continued to make her way northeast. On the ninth of September, she was almost in the middle of the Indian Ocean, on the line of the Tropic of Capricorn, her position being 20 degrees 17 inches latitude and 80 degrees 45 inches longitude. During the course of the previous night, symptoms of bad weather had appeared. A sudden fall of the barometer and a gathering of storm clouds, both signs of the formidable hurricanes that too often lashed these seas to fury. About three o'clock in the afternoon, a squall got up so suddenly that it almost caught the ship, a serious matter for a vessel which, heeled over to one side, cannot answer to a rudder and is in danger of not being brought up again unless a rigging is cut away. If that is done, she is disabled, incapable of offering any resistance to the waves while lying to, and is at the mercy of the ocean's fury. As soon as the storm broke, the passengers had, of course, been obliged to keep their cabins, for the deck was swept by tremendous seas. Only Fritz and Frank stayed on deck to lend a hand with the crew. Captain Gould took the watch at the outset, and the boatswain was at the wheel, while the second and third officers were on duty in the forecastle. The crew were at their posts, ready to obey the captain's orders, for it was a matter of life and death. The slightest mistake in the handling of her, while the seas were breaking over the flag as she lay half over on the port side, might have meant the end. Every effort must be made to get her up again, and then to trim her sails so as to bring her head on to the squall. And yet the mistake was made, not deliberately, perhaps, for the ship ran the risk of foundering through it, but certainly through some misunderstanding of the captain's orders, of which an officer ought not to have been capable if he possessed any of the instincts of a sailor. Robert Borup, the second officer, alone was to blame. The foretopsail, trimmed at a wrong moment, drove the ship still farther over, and a tremendous lump of water crashed over the taffrail. "'That cursed Borup wants to sing us,' cried Captain Gould. He has done it, the boatswain answered, trying to shove the tiller to starboard. 
The captain leaped to the deck and made his way forward at the risk of being swept back by the water. After a desperate struggle, he reached the forecastle. "'Get to your cabin,' he shouted in a voice of wrath to the second officer. "'Get to your cabin and stop there.' Borup's blunder was so patent that not one of the crew dared to protest, although they were all ready to stand by him if he had given them the word. He obeyed, however, and went back to the poop. What was possible to do, Captain Gould did. He trimmed all the canvas that the flight could carry, and succeeded in bringing her up without being obliged to cut away the rigging. The ship no longer lay broadside onto the sea. For three consecutive days they had run before the storm in constant peril. During almost the whole of that time Susan and Jenny and Dolly were obliged to keep to their cabins, while Fritz, Frank, and James Walston helped in the various operations. At last, on the 13th of September, an abatement of the storm came. The wind dropped, and although the sea did not immediately drop too, at last the waves no longer swept the deck of the flag. The ladies hurried eagerly out of their cabins. They knew what had taken place between the captain and the second officer, and why the latter had been removed from his post. Robert Borup's fate would be decided by a naval court when they got back. For three days they had run before the storm. There was much damage to the canvas to be made good, and John Block, who was in charge of this work, saw quite clearly that the crew were on the verge of mutiny. This state of things could not be lost upon Fritz, or Frank, or James Boston, and it filled them with more uneasiness than the storm had caused them. Captain Gould would not shrink from the severest measures against the mutineers. But was he not too late? During the following week there was no actual breach of discipline. As the flag had been carried some hundreds of miles to the east, she had to turn back to the west in order to get into the longitude of New Switzerland. On the 20th of September, about 10 o'clock, much to the surprise of all, for he had not been released from arrest, Robert Borup reappeared on deck. The passengers, who were all sitting together on the poop, had a presentiment that the situation, grave enough already, was about to become still more grave. Directly, Captain Gould saw the second officer coming forward. He went up to him. Mr. Borup, he said, you are under arrest. What are you doing here? Answer. I will, cried Borup loudly, and this is my answer. Turning to the crew, he shouted, Come on, mates. Hooray for Borup, sang from every part of the ship. Captain Gould rushed down into his cabin and came back with a pistol in his hand, but he was not given time to use it. A shot, fired by one of the sailors round Borup, wounded him in the head, and he fell into the boatswain's arms. Resistance was hopeless against an entire crew of mutineers, headed by the first and second officers. John Block, Fritz, Frank, and James Walston, drawn up near Captain Gould, tried in vain to maintain the struggle. In a moment they were overwhelmed by numbers, and ten sailors hustled them down to the spar deck with the captain. Jenny, Dolly, Susan, and the child were shut into their cabins, over which a guard was placed by order of Borup, now ruler of the ship. The situation of the prisoners in the semi-darkness of the spar deck, and of the wounded captain whose head could only be dressed with gold compresses, was a hard one. The boatswain was unfailing in his devotion to the captain. Fritz and Frank and James Walston were consumed by appalling anxiety. The three women were at the mercy of the mutineers of the flag. 
the men suffered agony from the thought that they were powerless. Several days passed. Twice a day, morning and evening, the hatch of the spar deck was opened and the prisoners were given some food. To the questions that John Block asked them, the sailors only replied with brutal threats. More than once did the boatswain and its companions try to force up the hatch and regain their liberty. But the hatch was guarded day and night, and even if they had succeeded in raising it, overpowering their guards, and getting up on deck, what chance would they have had against the crew, and what would have been the result? The brute, the brute, said Fritz over and over again, as he thought of his wife and Susan and Dolly. Yes, the biggest rascal alive, John Block declared. If he doesn't swing some day, it will be because justice is dead. But if the mutineers were to be punished, and the ringleader given the treatment he deserved, a man of war must catch and seize the flag, and Robert Borup did not commit the blunder of going into waters where ships were numerous, and where he and his gang might have run the risk of being chased. He must have taken the ship far out of our proper course, most probably to the eastward, with the object of getting away alike from ships in the African and Australian shores. Every day was adding a hundred, or a hundred and fifty, miles to the distance separating the flag from the meridian of New Switzerland. Captain Gould and the boatswain could tell from the angle at which the ship heeled, the port, that she was making good speed. The creaking of the mast steps showed that the first officer was cramming on sail. When the flag arrived in those distant waters of the Pacific Ocean, where piracy was practicable, what would become of the prisoners? The mutineers would not be able to keep them. Would they maroon them on some desert island? But anything would be better than to remain on board the ship, in the hands of Robert Borup and his accomplices. A week had passed since Harry Gould and his friends had been shut up on the spar deck, without a word about the women. But on the 27th of September... It seemed as if the speed of the three-master had decreased, either because she was becalmed or because she was hub to. About eight o'clock in the evening, a squad of sailors came down to the captives. These had no choice but to obey the order to follow him which the second officer gave them. What was going on above? Was their liberty about to be restored to them? Or had a party been formed against Robert Borup to restore Captain Gould to the command of the flag? When they were brought up on to the deck in front of all the crew, they saw Borupt waiting for them at the foot of the mainmast. Fritz and Frank cast a vain glance within the poop, the door of which was open. No lamp or lantern shed a gleam of light within. But as they came up to the starboard nettings, the boatswain could see the top of a mast rocking against the side of the ship. Evidently the ship's boat had been lowered to the sea. Was Borup preparing, then, to put the captain and his friends aboard her and cast them adrift in these waters, abandoning them to all the perils of the sea, without the least idea whether they were near any land? And the unfortunate women, too, were they to remain on board exposed to such appalling danger? At the thought that they would never see them more, Fritz and Frank and James determined to make a last attempt to set them free, though it should end in dying where they stood. Fritz rushed to the side of the poop, calling Jenny, but he was stopped, as Frank was stopped, and James was stopped before he heard any answer from Susan to his call. They were overpowered at once, and despite resistance were lowered with Captain Gould and John Block over the nettings into the ship's boat, which was fastened alongside the vessel by a knotted cable. Their surprise and joy, yes, joy, were inexpressible, 
the dear ones whom they had called in vain were in the boat already the women had been lowered down a few minutes before the prisoners had left the spar deck they were waiting in mortal terror not knowing whether their companions were to be cast adrift with them it seemed to them that to be reunited was the greatest grace that heaven could have bestowed on them and yet what peril menaced them aboard this boat only four bags of biscuit and salt meat had been flung into it with three casks of fresh water a few cooking utensils and a bundle of clothes and blankets taken at random from the cabins a meagre supply at best but they were together death alone could separate them henceforth they were not given much time to reflect in a few moments with the freshening wind the flag would be several miles away the boatswain had taken his place at the tiller and fritz and frank theirs at the foot of the mast ready to hoist the sail directly the boat should be free from the shelter of the ship captain gould had been laid down under the forward deck jenny was ministering to him where he lay stretched out on the blankets for he was unable to stand on the flag the sailors were leaning over the netting looking on in silence not one of them felt a spark of pity for their victims their fierce eyes gleamed in the darkness just at this moment a voice was raised the voice of captain gould to whom his indignation restored some strength he struggled to his feet dragged himself from bench to bench and half stood up you brutes he cried you shall not escape man's justice nor yet god's justice frank added cast off cried barupt the rope dropped into the water the boat was left alone and the ship disappeared into the darkness of the night end of chapter three recording by nancy cochran gergen gilbert arizona